Good morning to you. Uh, welcome. Glad that y'all are here this morning. My name's Clay Holland. I'm senior pastor here at Christ the King. It's great to be with y'all this morning for worship. We are in Mark chapter 12, and so I would invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn in Mark chapter 12, or you can pull it up on your phone or your iPad or whatever you got, or if you got nothing, it's going to be on the screens anyway. Um, but if you have it, you can turn there and follow along. We are on the third of uh, three different confrontations that Jesus has with various religious leaders in the city of Jerusalem during the last week of his life. This is where this scene takes place before his crucifixion on that first Good Friday. And the first was with the Pharisees and the Herodians. The second was with the Sadducees. So last week, today he is approached by one single scribe who asks him, uh, one very critical question. And so we're going to see what that question is and how Jesus answered it. As I read now from Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would... Uh, teach us and open our hearts and our minds and our souls and strengthen us to live in love for you and our neighbors. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the summer of 1989, which was the summer after I graduated from high school and before I went to college, I very briefly flirted with uh, majoring in English literature and trying to become a teacher in a prep school somewhere in the Northeast. And the reason why I very briefly flirted with this idea was because in the summer of 1989, I went to the theater, uh, when you could still do that, and I watched Dead Poet Society. And I thought, I want to be this guy. I wanted to be John Keating, who was the teacher who was played by Robin Williams in that film. I wanted to get in front of a classroom of high school students and tell them to get their poetry books out and to, to rip out the dumb introduction to poetry that they don't need. You know, I wanted to be uh, the teacher that told their students to, to carpe diem, to seize the day. I wanted to have an office right behind my classroom, you know, with wood paneled oak and bookcases and a big window that looked out into the, into the woods, you know, in, in the northeast somewhere. I didn't want those things enough to actually major in English literature or move to New Hampshire. But I thought about it briefly. 
And, and of course, the, uh, the most moving scene, really, in that film comes at the end when John Keating, the character played by Robin Williams, has been fired from his school. He's been fired from his classroom. He has been found to be a, a, a kind of a maverick, too much of a maverick for that school and a, and a bad influence on those students. And that inquiry about his firing was precipitated by a tragedy with one of his students, but his other students are completely crushed by the decision of the school. They loved this man. They loved their teacher. And as he was being unceremoniously released from his classroom, they gave him the best poetic send-off they could think to give him, standing up on their desks one by one saying, Oh, Captain, my Captain. It's a very, very moving scene. It's a beautiful scene. It's an act of love and devotion of a group of students for their teacher. But then if you stop and you think, why? Why was, or why were his students so devoted to him? Well, the answer to that question is because he was first devoted to them. Their teacher loved them first and was devoted to them first. And then because of that, they loved him back. And they were devoted to him back. It's very biblical in nature. As followers of Jesus, we are called first and foremost to lives of love. And the Apostle Paul tells us the order of our love. We love, not, not, not Paul, this is John in 1 John 4. He says, we love because God first loved us. We love because God first loved us. Now here's something that you know. Love is challenging. Always. It's always hard. And I think we live in a particularly challenging time to love right now. It's hard to fix our eyes and our minds and our hearts on God when so much of our lives are turned upside down and so much of our lives are disruptive. It's hard to love our neighbors when our every impulse of our society right now is to polarize us, is to set us against one another, to demonize one another. That's why we need to hear these words of Jesus this morning with new and fresh ears. Because if we really stop to think about these words of Jesus, they're radical, they're revolutionary, they're transforming. Love God. Love neighbor. Is it simple? Yes. Is it easy? Absolutely not. But is it life transforming and radical? Absolutely it is. Now, just a little bit of context here before we dive in. It appears that Jesus is still in his discussion with the Sadducees when this scribe comes to ask him this question. If you want to know what that's about, that was last week's sermon, and you can go and listen to this. And, and, and here's the scene. Two episodes ago in the life of Jesus, some Pharisees and Herodians came to Jesus, and they asked him a political question. And then in the last episode, as we saw last week, some Sadducees came to Jesus and they asked Jesus a theological question. And now a single scribe comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus a legal question. Legal in quotation marks because it, it, for the scribe, uh, what was legal meant what was pertaining to the law of God as it is outlined in what we now call the Old Testament. And the scribe was an expert in that. That was his specialty. So as a legal question for Jesus, which is this, which commandment is the most important of all? 
Now, in the original language, the thrust of that question really is something like this. Which commandment is primary? Upon which commandment do the others depend? Which commandment is the foundational one that everything else builds upon? That's what he's getting at there. And Jesus overachieves in his answer because he responds with not just one commandment but two. First thing he says is this. Because God first loved us, we are called to love God. We're called to love God. The first question I think that we need to ask here then is if we're called to love God, who is God? Who is this God that we are called to love? The uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is wonderful, it's a really, really, really great summary of the Christian faith and it's worth studying and, and, and memorizing in your own personal devotional life or using with your family. It asks a question about this that I have a, a humble quibble with. I'm, uh, it's a humble quibble because those guys were all smarter than I am, and, and they took a lot longer to, to write this uh, than I did to write this sermon. But here's my quibble. There's a question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism that says this, what is God? What is God? And the answer that they give is God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. All of these things are absolutely true. All of them derive from the Bible. My quibble is this. This is not the way that God normally introduces himself to his people in the Bible. I think a better question would be, who is God? Who is God? Because in the Bible, God always introduces himself as a who and not as a what. It's important. And we get a sense of the importance of this in the repeated use of the words, the Lord, in verses 29 and 30, as Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which we used earlier in our service in the affirmation of faith. This is an Old Testament quotation that is known in Judaism as the Shema. The word Shema comes from the word hear, which is the first words of this verse. Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see how the words the Lord, which are English Bible translations, if you pay attention when you're reading through the Old Testament, the word Lord is usually capitalized. That's because it is the uh, translation of the word Yahweh in the Old Testament. But you need to see how the word Lord is distinguished from the word God. You see that? The Lord our God is, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. We're not talking in the Bible about some generic idea called God. We're not talking about God as you understand him to be or her to be or it to be. What we're talking about is the Lord our God. The Lord is descriptive regarding the personal nature of this God. The Lord, as I said earlier, is the translation of the word Yahweh. The Lord is the God of the covenant, the God who makes promises to his people, the God who keeps all of his promises. The Lord is the God who is both holy and gracious. He's both holy and gracious. Now, this is a struggle, I think, for us. It's a struggle for me. Because at different times in my life, I think about God as being either only holy or only gracious, you know? And, and, and that's a struggle for us. If we only think about God as holy, 
We misconstrue him as some angry ogre who is frowning and is just mad all the time. And he's just looking down on you and he's got like this cosmic fly swatter or something. He's waiting for you to step out of line so he can whack, you know, slap you on the hand. Gotcha. You know, that's what we think about God if he is only holy. But on the other hand, if we think about God as being only gracious, we think of the God as being this kind of jolly, you know, kind of bumbly, kind of grandfatherly God who looks at sin and rebellion and is kind of like, oh, shucks, it's okay. You know, boys will be boys, girls will be girls. Kind of winks at our sin because he doesn't take it all that seriously. But that's not the Lord our God. The Lord our God is holy and gracious. Sin and rebellion against him is exceedingly serious. It's so serious that without his grace, we would be condemned by our sin. But the good news is that he is gracious. And this we'll see as we go along. So who is God that we are called to love? The Lord. The Lord our God who is holy and gracious. The second question we need to ask then is this. How do we love the Lord our God? And here, the verse that Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6 goes into some bit of detail. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, in full disclosure, Jesus, because he is Jesus, added something to Deuteronomy 6. Don't know if you noticed that from our affirmation of faith to now. He added with all your mind uh, to the words of Deuteronomy 6, which contains only your heart your soul, and your strength. And, you know, as I was thinking about this this week, I think it would be a wonderful aspect of your own personal devotional life, maybe in a journaling, you know, sort of thing, for you to just sit down and to read this verse several times and to read it prayerfully and meditate on it and ask yourself some questions, some really honest questions. How do I love God with my heart? Where am I on that? How am I loving God with my heart? How do I love God, the Lord my God, with my soul? How do I love the Lord my God with my mind? How do I love the Lord my God with my strength? But ultimately, I think the point of this is for us to understand that this is a command for us to love God with everything that we have. This is what it means to be a full human. And so what Deuteronomy 6 is saying, and Jesus is repeating, is love God with all of you. Love God with every part of you. Love God with everything that makes you, you. Love God with all of that. Don't hold any part of yourself back. This is important because it speaks to our holistic um, consistency as human beings. Have you ever thought that you can, and I'm going to put this in quotations, you can love God with your mind. You can be one who is diligent about studying your Bible. You can be one who is diligent about theology and reading the, the theology, you know, books and the blogs and, you know, you know, all of those kinds of things. But just like Taylor, one of our pastors, said last week, if what you have studied doesn't make that journey from your head down into your heart, you're not really loving God. You could simply become contentious and you could become divisive. You're not really loving God. You can also feel in your heart or your soul a deep 
spiritual connection to God, but maybe not love Him with your strength because you don't live out your devotional faith, this feeling that you have for God. You don't live it out in the world. So maybe you have this kind of spiritual connection to God, but you're dishonest in your work or you're verbally abusive to your husband or to your wife or to your children or you're sexually immoral. You're not really loving God. Love for God, this verse says, is holistic. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of what makes you and me, you and me. This is the first and greatest commandment. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on and says the second is like it. Because God first loved us, we love our neighbor. Verse 31, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now this is a quote also from the Old Testament. This is from Leviticus chapter 19. And here's what Jesus is saying. Love for God is primary. It's our first love. But if you love God truly, you will love your neighbor. If you truly love God, you will love your neighbor. Love for God is prior to your love for neighbor, but it establishes your love for neighbor, both the importance of it, the vitality of it, and the possibility of it. The reason that Jesus adds this command and doesn't just stop at one is because these are the twin commands of Scripture that summarize, actually, the entire law of God. In fact, this is why we use the Ten Commandments this morning as our confession of sin. The Ten Commandments are a summary encapsulation of all of the Old Testament law of God, and they're based upon those two pillars of love for God and love for neighbor. Commands 1 through 4 in the Ten Commandments are all about loving God. Commandments uh, 5 through 10 in the Ten Commandments are all about loving your neighbor. It literally summarizes the entire law of God to say love God and love your neighbor. So let's ask the same questions about loving our neighbor that we asked about loving God. The first one was this. Just like we asked who is God, we need to ask who is our neighbor. Now, I have good news and bad news when it comes to this question. The good news is that Jesus actually answered this very question. He answered it literally in Luke chapter 10. The bad news is that the answer that he gave is massively challenging. In Luke 10, 25, uh, the passage begins exactly the way that this passage begins here in Mark chapter 12, with a scribe coming to Jesus, summarizing the law in the same way actually that Jesus did here. But then he starts to feel a little bit funny about it. The, the, Luke makes a comment that he, he was trying to justify himself. But he asked a follow-up question. I think he asked this follow-up question because he, he didn't want the answer to be what he thought it might be. But then he got disappointed in the answer. The question that he asked was, okay, then the commandment summarizer, love God and love my neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And to answer this question, Jesus tells one of the most famous stories he ever told. It is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You can read all about it in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And the point of the Good Samaritan parable is this. All of the people that should have been a good neighbor to this man who was robbed 
and was beaten up and was left by the side of the road. All the people that should have been a good neighbor to him, a priest, a Levite, exemplary Israelites both, they were bad neighbors to him. And here's the important part about that. In the context of Leviticus chapter 19, as the people of Israel read it in the Old Testament, they really believed that that verse applied to their Jewish neighbors. Love your neighbor as yourself meant for them to love your fellow Israelite as yourself. But Jesus says the ones that he would have expected to be good neighbors to this man, this Jewish man lying on the side of the road, were poor neighbors to him. So who was a good neighbor to him? Well, a Samaritan. A non-Jew, someone, a true Israelite, would have despised with every, every fiber of his being, and frankly one who should have despised him right back with every fiber of his being. But the Samaritan was the one who stopped, the one who tended to his wounds, the one who took him to safety, the one who used his own money to pay for his lodging and his treatment, a beaten and broken man. What's the point of this parable? It's surprising and it's massively challenging. Everyone is your neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. Your literal next door neighbor is your neighbor. The people that you run into in your office, uh, from the CEO in the corner office to the, the custodial staff who are in, you know, emptying the trash cans, all of them are your neighbor. People in parts of Houston that you never go into, they are your neighbors. The people that you see on TV or that you read you know, on, your, you know, on your social media feed that make your blood pressure go up like a thousand points and make your face turn red and make you want to throw something at the TV or throw your computer across the room and smash it with a baseball bat, guess what? Neighbor, 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 neighbor. All of them. Full stop, period, if Jesus is to believe, be believed. And our call as followers of Jesus is to love them all. That's who our neighbor is. But then we have to ask that follow-up question, how do we do that? Those are our neighbors, how do we love them? Well, Jesus answers this from a quote from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want to pause here for just a minute and point out something that you may struggle with when you read words like this. Uh, because these words from the Old Testament and that Jesus affirms here by quoting them, they do presume a level of self-love and self-care and self-respect that, frankly, you may not feel, to be completely honest. Because I am quite sure that some people encounter these words of Jesus, love my neighbor as myself, and think, well, you know what? That's not a very high bar. I think I can do that because I don't really like myself very much. I don't really love myself. So I think I can love people that same way. If this is the case with you, I think it is good to know why Jesus would point to these words and why these words are grounded. The words in Leviticus 19 that are quoted by Jesus in Mark 12 are grounded in biblical teaching about your great dignity as a human being by virtue of the fact that you are created in the image of God. 
that you are fearfully and wonderfully made by God, that you were knit together by God in your mother's womb, and nothing can erase that image that is embedded in you by your Creator. And what's further, if you have placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, you are united to Christ. And what it means to be united to Christ is that everything that Christ earned is applied to you. What it really means is that when God looks at you, He looks at you through Jesus that you are united to. He sees His Son. He sees you as a beloved son. He sees you as a beloved daughter, full of dignity and purpose, with agency and the ability to make a mark on this world. That's who you are. And to love yourself. Not crossing over into that prideful sense of self-love, but to love yourself as one who knows that you belong to God, that you are His. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we can begin to think, just like we did earlier, and maybe you can in your own devotional life think about this too. So what does that mean? What does that mean to love my neighbor as myself? Well, how do I love myself? There's a few ways. I shelter myself. By God's grace and by God's ultimate provision, I have a house. I have a home. I have a place to live. I have a place to live that is protected from everything that Houston throws at us. You know, heat and storms and once a year cold. uh, But what would it mean for me? What would it mean for me to be a place of shelter to my neighbors, to be a place of shelter to others? What would it mean to be known as cultivating and creating a place of hospitality and environment of warmth and care, even if it's just, you know, a place for conversation with people in my front yard or in my backyard, you know, in this time? People need safe shelters right now more than ever from the storms of this life. Do we provide that? I clothe myself. By God's grace, I have clothes to wear. And by God's further and incredible grace, I'm actually able to make certain decisions about the clothes that I wear. If I need to present myself in a particular way, given the setting that I'm going into, I'm able to do that. I'm able to flex that way. But what does that mean with respect to our call to love our neighbors, many, many of whom can't say that or may not even be clothed in the simplest of garments. I feed myself. By God's grace, I do not worry about having enough food to survive. In fact, by God's further grace, I can experiment with new recipes that requires me to go, you know, to some obscure section of H-E-B and get an ingredient that I normally wouldn't use or try out some new restaurant uh, here in Houston. Many, many, many of our neighbors are unable to say that. These are just a few ways that I love myself and my family in very practical ways. And none of this is meant to provoke guilt. Guilt is the worst motivator. It's terrible. It's not meant to do that. But it is to get us thinking about that question. How do I love myself? And how much of that self-love do I share? How much of it, does, how much of it emanates out of me to my neighbor? 
It's an important question. You know, one of my, uh, our, our elders here at Christ the King sent me an email last week, and it contained a screenshot of a, of a tweet with a series of comments that went along with it. The original tweet was by a female scientist who advocates for women in the STEM professions. And in her original tweet, she said that she was, quote, as non-religious of a person as there could be. She did not believe in God. Yet she, and then those who commented on her post, recognized a potentially troubling reality in the world that they inhabit, the world that they believe that we're moving more into. Now, this is their logic. This is not my logic. This is their logic. And this is basically what they're saying. There is no God. There is no God. Religious belief is objectively false. But religion, and particularly the Christian church, has had a stabilizing and mobilizing impact on communities throughout its entire existence. So their question was, what's going to replace that stabilization and mobilization in an increasingly godless world. In her tweet, she said that she grew up poor and that her mom would take her once a week to the local church in their community that they did not go to on Sundays. But that church had a food pantry, and once a week they would get enough food, and that food would care for them throughout the week. And so she summed up the way, what she was thinking with these words. This is a quote. As a tool for maintaining social cohesion across vast population distributions, religion is unmatched. We, meaning non-religious people, we had better find an alternative quickly. Did you hear that? It was really an honest and a humble admission that at the present time she couldn't see a logical and coherent replacement for love of neighbor that the church had provided throughout its entire history to its communities. Now this of course is massively motivating and massively challenging. You know the scriptures say that for whom much is given much is expected. And the truth is that the Lord has given this church, this local church, this local body, much. Much. Much in the way of property. Much in the way of financial stability. Much in the way of the resources and the gifts and the talents and the skills of this body who actually are the church, of you. Much. And it got me ruminating this week on a question. If this church, Christ the King, right here on Silver Road, got hit this week by the metaphorical bus and we were wiped off the map of Houston and we, were no, we no longer existed, would our immediate community and would the city of Houston be worse off because we, Christ the King, don't exist? Would Spring Branch in particular and the city of Houston more generally miss us? if we were not here? I do think by God's grace the answer is yes, the city of Houston and our community would miss us, but I think it's a qualified yes in the sense that probably not as much as it should. And that got me to thinking about this question, what would it look like if our church simplified our existence 
and took our marching orders from this passage. Love God. Love neighbor. Everything else is gravy. It actually is embedded in our vision statement. Reach Houston. Renew lives. I will confess that my own leadership on this matter has too often been consumed by the tyranny of the urgent. Too often consumed by putting out fires. Too often consumed by putting out fires that weren't even actually in existence. Those are no fun, but I do that all the time. But what if we were this community of people fully committed to loving God and loving our neighbors? It's a vision that provides clarity and pushes all of the noise. You see, it pushes all that noise about elections and candidates and debates and vaccines and masks and organizations. It pushes all those things to the margin of the page. Some of those things it pushes off of the page. But it keeps God and neighbor front and center of our vision, front and center of our lives. Now the truth is we'll never get there. We'll never perfectly love God, ever. We'll never perfectly love our neighbor, but thanks be to God that there is one who could, and actually, there is one who did. Jesus, our Savior, loved God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength, and he loved his neighbors, us, so much that while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Now, His Spirit lives in us. Empowered and motivated by Him, we pursue a twin vision for life that keeps us focused and tunes out the noise. Love God. Love neighbor. There is no commandment greater than these. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us deeply and rescuing us by your grace. Thank you for sending your spirit that dwells in us, that strengthens us to live for you. And we pray that you would do that now by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.